City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Seminars, which come to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. As founders of the American Theatre Wing's Antoinette Perry Tony Award and president of the Wing, I'm so happy to be able to bring you these seminars. They offer the rare opportunity to hear performers, producers, playwrights, directors, designers, and a host of theatre professionals discuss the realities of working in the theatre. Since introduced in 1973, more than 900 of Broadway's and Off-Broadway's best have participated. But we are more than the Tony Awards, which are proudly given for distinguished achievement in the theater. We are a year-round organization dedicated to serving the theater and the community. We are a source that helps develop new audiences. We initiated Introduction to Broadway in 1991 and since then have enabled nearly 70,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the first time. We continue to reach out with our newest program, Theater in Schools, through which professionals like those you will meet here today volunteer to go into classrooms to discuss working in the theater with students. This in-classroom series targets every facet of the business of theater, from playwrights and directors to poster artists and press agents. Not only do we want these young people to become theatergoers, but we want them to know the wide range of other job opportunities that exist in our business. We are a means of bringing the magic of theater to thousands who cannot get to the theater itself. The Wings Hospital Program, which date back to World War II and the stage door canteen, continues today with performers from Broadway, <coughs> off-Broadway, and the cabaret world doing almost 100 shows each year in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and AIDS centers in the New York area. We are proud to be of service, happy to have this wonderful working relation with the theatrical community we are grateful to everyone who makes what the American Theatre Wing does possible. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from the performers you will be seeing today. And so let me quickly introduce our panel. Chuck Cooper from The Life, Robert Cuccioli from Jekyll and Hyde, Pat Hengel from 1776, Pamela Isaacs from The Life, Jack McCarthy from Sideshow, Jay Smith Cameron from As Bees and Honey Drown. And of course, our loyal and distinguished moderators are Brendan Gill, 
author, critic in residence at the New Yorker magazine, and on the board of the American Theatre Wing, and George C. White, president of Eugene O'Neill Theatre Wing, and esteemed director, both here and abroad. And now, let us turn it over to these distinguished young men, and they will continue the panel on the performers. Thank you, Isabel. I'd like to start, we usually begin by saying, uh, by talking about how you got into the business, and, and I want to get to that. But uh, since uh, we have Robert here, who is doing more than one role all at once... Oh, sure, start with me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Why not? Sure. Uh, I thought it would be sort of fun to get into craft first and then back into the whole reason of how you got here. And here is uh, a person who is doing two roles in one. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the craft of what's the mindset of the actor. I mean, for something so particularly uh, diametrically opposed in terms of, of character. Uh, how do you approach those roles? Well, I, I've been doing the parts, parts for uh, about four years now. So uh, now for me, switching back and forth between the two is almost like flicking on and off a light switch. But uh, I remember when I first started developing the two, it was very much of uh, finding two different spectrums to, and creating two different characters. And um, uh, I went very physical with both of them to make it very, um, to put it in my body as to finding the two characters physically. So then it became almost, uh, uh, what, uh, what do you call it? It was just spontaneous. That it, was just, it would be a bodily reflex to go into the two of them. Um, so that's how I kind of started with it. And just going, uh, creating two different people as much as I could. And slowly they began to flip back and forth a lot easier. Uh -huh. You expanded an astounding amount of physical energy. And were you born with that? <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't think anybody. No. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody has ever poured more energy right on the, the whole. You know, the whole audience, the whole theater is rocking with your energy. Well, I think I finally found something that I that fits me. I'm I'm very much a pedal to the metal kind of a performer, and uh, this is something that really needs it. Mm. And I I'm allowed to really just let loose and, and do it. And it's almost like a release for me. I, I just really enjoy physical activity, and, and uh, I'm very athletic, and I've had to be more so because of these parts. I've had to, you know, work out constantly and make sure I eat well, and it's, it's a constant maintenance system. I mean, daily, my, I mean, my days are pretty much organized to do the two and a half hours at night and, and maintaining myself for that. And when you have some rest period, what do you do? Rollerblading? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> rest? <laughs> What's that? Well, what is it? I think if I stop, I'll just die. So I just have to keep going. Well, picking up on that a little bit, but you said something, and I think for, for uh, people to know, uh, and I know that, uh, that uh, there are a lot of people, including uh, the, the great Olivier, were, was in the gym until he couldn't do it anymore every day. Yeah. So you'd say that physically, and I think all of you have have got to keep some kind of regime that keeps you fit because people I think forget that it's you don't just walk on walk into the dressing room half hour before and oh sure and most people think that the show itself keeps you in shape but in effect you have to be in shape to do that and it's very demanding what what all of us do and uh, it needs to be 
um, you need to really keep yourself in shape to do that. It's, you're an athlete. Really. Uh, Olivia expected any actor to be able to jump off a 10-foot platform or try to jump up a 10-foot platform. It was gymnastics along with everything else. That's why many people uh, didn't like to work with them. <laughs> <laughs> but also, that's the, part of the relationship in theater of dance, the connection between the two, the actors and dancers alike face the same question of the discipline yeah. uh, that, that, that they have to practice all, all their lives. It's a tremendous challenge that way. So much easier to be a playwright than to be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> the sedentary life. The sedentary life, yeah. yeah. Although right. the same thing happens, I would imagine, for a playwright that stops writing. You know, you become depressed or whatever, yeah. so, you know. It's like you have to keep the mind muscle. you have to keep going. the body moving or I will start fading and becoming, you know, muscles apathetic you about things. Hmm? Muscles you don't use, you lose. Right. Well, now, I'll go back. How did you get started? Oh, I did plays in my garage when I was a little boy. <laughs> I loved Bob Barker when I was a little kid. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and then I ended up in a town in Central California um, where there was a, a good program at my high school, which happened to be three blocks away from a theater, PCPA, which was a staple in the 70s. It might have been the biggest uh, summer theater on the West Coast in those days. Uh, I was fortunate. Had that not been there, I, I don't know what would have happened because I was hanging with a, bad, a bunch of bad guys in high school and whatnot, but luckily the theater kept me on the straight and narrow. And then I ended up at ACT in San Francisco and uh, came to New York from there. So that was the very beginning. And you're very big. You're very tall. How tall are you? 6'2". And, and shrinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but is that a difficulty to be too tall? It hasn't been a problem, no. Uh, no. Because there were actors, very few actors who go over six feet, I don't know. Right. Uh, because it's... Uh, I don't know, in the musical theater there seemed to be a bunch of us, you know, mm -hmm. for some reason singing and being big. Where it's at these days. Women are getting taller, so the men have to be... I yeah. know, that's amazing. Right. I think in film it's a problem. Yeah. But I think on the stage, I prefer a tall man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that kind of show, now. Let's okay, okay. Speak for yourself. Well, okay. Well, how did you get going? Oh, my God. I can't remember a time when I wasn't on the stage. I think I did my first production at a Parks and Recreation at seven years old. Where was that? Um, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember standing on the stage at seven in the spotlight, feeling like I was at home. <laughs> And I think I just, I did every high school, junior high school production. I just kept working and working and working. And um, I can't remember a time when I, when I didn't, wasn't trying to do this. And what about the question of discipline for you? Did you really learn that too? I learned discipline early on. Uh, my parents, uh, I mean, my, my, when I got home from school, I literally, my schedule was timed. I had violin, I played the violin. And I'd practice for two hours. I'd do my homework. I had concerts on, um, I had orchestra practice on Saturdays, concerts on Sundays. So I learned at an early age <laughs> not to, to have discipline, that your life has to be structured. So it helps now because I'm in a, in a, in a piece that's very, very difficult to do. And I literally take care of myself. I have, you know, I, I, my life is devoted to the theater at this point. But you didn't feel that your parents were being like a stage mother kind of thing? No, I, I loved what I was doing, mm -hmm. but yeah, so I, I, I think I rebelled a little bit when I was uh. about 19. 
but mm -hmm. I rebelled into wanting to sing. I mean, my, I was a violinist up until that time, and then I said, I really want to sing. Mm -hmm. And that was my way of rebelling. And you trained your voice at all up to yeah, that time? Uh, yeah, I was in a preparatory program before I went to USC, mm -hmm. uh, University of Southern California. So, uh, yeah, I, kept, I was studying for, for a long time, still do. How did you get to New York? By air. <laughs> I, I was trained now. I, I was in Los Angeles, and everyone kept saying, you, you need to go to New York um, because you're a singer and because you, you know, you're theatrically trained. And I finally just picked up and went. I had no agent. I had no friends. Now, I won't recommend this for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but I was determined, and... Um, I came here and I met people and I studied and I just, I was excited about being in New York because this is, this is it, this is where it happens. And within six months I got my first job. Marvelous. Yeah. How, and how did you do that? You walked in? Did you get it? It was really wild. I happened to uh, walk into an audition with a director that I had worked with in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And he says, he gave me this, the job, and I just kept working ever since. The uh, famous American sculptor of the 19th century, Augustus St. Gordons, used to say, if you're not living in New York, you're camping out. <laughs> <laughs> so you had something about that. Well, I knew. <laughs> so true. I knew that when I was in Los Angeles, that the only way that I'd be taken seriously as an actor was to come to, Los Angeles, to New York. Right. And I wanted to study in New York. And um, I think it's the best thing that I ever did because um, the opportunities, I mean, New York embraces talent as opposed to, I, and I hate to say that for Los Angeles, but um, they embrace talent. They, they nurture talent. If you've got something to offer, somebody in New York is going to find you and you're going to work. That's, that's encouraging to hear. Pat, can you tell us about your I, I want to ask, how many of you have in mind being performers? Actors or the like. Yeah, that's this is what I figured. How many, how many of you intend to start on stage? I mean, uh, oh, that's where you get your first experience. That's super. Because here's what's happening today. You're talking to somebody, first of March, I'll be a, a professional actor for 48 years. I haven't done, I'm doing 1776, a, a revival of the musical that was done first in 69. I haven't done a musical before, and this is the first play I've done on Broadway in about 18 years. But, and the, the time, most of my career before that time was on Broadway. Then I went and did films and everything. There's a total different bunch of cats <laughs> that are the younger people that are in films now you see, most people my age and older started through stage. I mean, even Clark Gable and those guys, they started through stage, then went to film. Now, so many are going to sitcoms and television and so the whole proper. film thing. And the discipline among the actors that that way is awful. <laughs> they're, they're, so for them to sit in their dressing rooms because of their own little egos, and let people wait on them, you know, sometimes out in the cold, you know. This, see, this cannot happen because you have it instilled to you on stage because if you don't make your cue when you're supposed to on stage, your fellow actors will kill you before curtain call. Wait for the producer to fire you. You'll be a dead duck, you know. And so, 
when you get this kind of discipline ingrained in you, you cannot behave like some people I'm not going to name. <laughs> bad, 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 awful, awful behavior. And it should not be. See, it should not be. And it was not in the old days. You behaved that way with John Ford, Julia Kazan, somebody like that. And bam, you were on your way out of the I don't give a damn if, if they had three weeks of you in the film. They would refilm it. Because you did not behave to the director, uh, you know, the way a lot of them behave. <laughs> and so, I'm saying to you, be good. <laughs> when, they, when, they, when the assistant director comes and says, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, we need you on set, you know, you go. Don't say, I'll be there as soon as I finish my call. <laughs> and now you, you stroll in 30 minutes later. And, uh, you know, some director like a John Schlesinger has waited on you in the cold Mexico City air for you to get your little body out there, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Buddy Gooden's a saying that along with voice and, and movement and, and singing, discipline should be learned yeah. as well. I think it's one of the most important things as a discipline on what you do and on, on everything that, is, that you work with. I think that Jane Cameron Smith is, is a, a perfect example of that because the discipline of being able to spew out the words oh. you do at the, at the, the rate that you do is just fabulous. Thank it's you. Really, it's Which fantastic. Great. I was about to get to you, What's too. your background yes, to bring to that? Um, well, it's interesting because I started off playing the violin, too, and I was going to make the same observation. <laughs> it's true. And, uh, Are you in 1776? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is excellent. And, it, and also, I was thinking about this on the way over today, that one of the things that has best prepared me for working in the theater is that when I was really young, I would play in chamber groups. And, I mean, first of all, the orchestra is fantastic, but chamber groups where you have to listen. And sometimes you don't play the melody. You're playing in second violin one day, and you have to listen for your turn, and you have to follow where the melody goes. It goes there, and then it comes back here. And <clears throat> not everybody has that chance to sing or play an instrument, but if they can, if you can develop other way, other uh, craft in different arts, I think it serves you so much to be able to learn to listen and follow where the focus of the story goes and where your fellow performers are. And, you know, that the melody shifts off and that you're just as much making the whole when it's your turn to play the harmony. I think it's so important, too, because an orchestra teaches you to not only listen to what you're playing, mm -hmm. but what every other instrument is playing. You learn, right. and also to watch a conductor. Right. So you're watching and you're listening. And the real joy comes yeah. from doing, you know, following your part of it, not yeah. just when it's your turn to play the melody. And it helps in doing ensemble work because as you listen to fellow actors, you really have to listen mm -hmm. for every exactly. single nuance and every single change. And I think learning an instrument or playing in orchestras or choirs or whatever it is that, that you want to do outside of the, being an actor, it, it teaches you things that will help you in your acting. I never thought that playing a violin was going to help me. I played the thing exactly. for eight years, and, and by the time I said, oh, God, enough of this. But what the skills that I learned as a violinist, not only just the discipline, but listening and watching and being aware and the musicality and, and everything else has helped me as a singer and as an actor and a performer. It's so. interesting that you both started with the violin, because I always was told 
that that was the worst sound in the world, children learning how to play a violin. <laughs> <laughs> because until it's you true, play you it well, you play exactly. it badly. Exactly, you sound wretched yeah. until yeah. you play really I well. You, well. But I think anything. Yeah. I've heard, oh God, anything you play. <laughs> Trumpet's not but too terrific. Oh. <laughs> but string instruments are, are, are really yeah. difficult because you don't just press the ivory yeah. and that note comes out. You have yeah. to find it. And where, it's really find it. Where, where were you growing up playing the violin? Greenville, South Carolina. Oh, All right. right. Pat and I are both from Carolina. Do you play the violin? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I don't play that. I play guitar a little bit, but uh, I, uh, my discipline, uh, I learned my discipline in uh, choir in high school. I sang in a very prestigious uh, choir in high school, and we had to show up at 7 o'clock in the morning and be there on time, or it was not good news if you were late. And, uh, and that what you were talking about, the listening that goes on, uh, is, uh, went on there to you. It's, it's really interesting to be a part of a group and and to play your part but also be conscious of what's going on around you mm -hmm. and it it develops a sense in you that I, I didn't realize until you m just mentioned it right now how important that how that served me mm -hmm. in my career now and mm -hmm. in, in being a part of a group and and playing my knowing when it's my turn and knowing when to step right. back exactly because mm -hmm. unlike oh sorry to mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. unlike the uh, actors who are trained on on sound stages to only act when the camera's on them, right. you know, you have to, the actors on stage all create the illusion. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no editor going, look here, hear this, notice this. Mm -hmm. Everyone has to, it's an extreme, precise, you know, it's a precision team effort. Mm -hmm. It really is. Mm -hmm. I also, I, I uh, have worked at painting and whatnot and learned so much about acting mm -hmm. through the discipline of all the other arts, you know, mm -hmm. I got frustrated with horrible scripts that you're handed and so I tried to write something and learned a great deal by you know, delving in there. I, I'm not a writer, but I, I, it helped my acting tremendously, along with painting, you know, thematically how this counterpoints this and whatnot. It's all one. It's all related. Well, yeah, go back, it's absolutely true. All the different disciplines interact if you're aware and, and pick up on it, you know, right, make, right. make that connection. Right. Uh, Jeff, you were, where was the choir in the high school? Uh, my, uh, uh, we were in Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Uh, Heights High Choir, and we we toured. It's a commercial, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we cut albums. We toured. Wow. Uh, it was it was an awesome experience. It really was. How and, big a uh, choir? Thirty? Forty? Oh no, no. It was more like fifty, uh, really? seventy-five. Very on. big job. Very oh, big. Wow. And then there was a chamber choir and. You know, I had a little solo every now and then. Oh my God, this is very funny. One of my solos was. Um, I'll do one for us. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, we we used to play different uh, community centers around around the city, and we once went to a geriatric home, and. It, m the title of my solo was Ain't Got Time to Die. Which was very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't got time to die. And they're like... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Chasing it, yeah. yeah. And then where did you go from there to come on and um, you know, getting to here? Well, I went, I went, you know, finished high school and uh, I thought when I went to college that I was going to be uh, disc jockey. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I really didn't know. I had a lot of exposure to the theater because uh, being from Cleveland, 
Uh, my parents uh, worked a lot in the community theater there in Caramel House, which is a very mm -hmm. famous uh, uh, community theater. And I'd seen the, my first pr the first show I saw was an all black production of Oklahoma. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. So I, I just thought that everybody in the theater was black, and that was just, just a natural place for me to be. But uh, it, it never uh, occurred to me as, uh, as something to do until I went to college. I went to uh, the freshman orientation uh, little doodah. What college? Uh, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. And my um, advisor happened to be the lighting director, lighting teacher, professor in the School of Theater. And I told him what my interests were. And he suggested that I try the theater department. So I thought, well, you know, okay, fine, I'll do that. And then when I figured that, you know, you can get eight hours of credit for voice work <laughs> or for fencing and, and it was fun and we had a good time and all the people were so cool and groovy and hmm. uh, you know I was smitten I was just I was bitten it was just like oh there's no going back I, huh. this is where I'm supposed to be and uh, and the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> when did you get to New York? got to New York in 76 got my equity card 19, the first not 17 yes <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was so lucky. I was so lucky. I got my equity card the first week I was here. Oh my wow. God! Yeah, I was. Yeah. How did you do that? Picked it up off a dead body. Right. right. Chuck Cooper from the geriatric ward. <laughs> well, all of, all of, I guess all the jobs I've gotten have been a combination of luck, who you know, and talent. And uh, when I got to New York upperclassmen who had been here before me had already cased the joint out and and uh, were working with this particular uh, uh, children's theater company performing arts repertory theater which is now theater works USA um, and they uh, a friend of mine recommended me uh, for an audition I went in and sang and um, and they hired me and I was I went out on the road with young Mark Twain and uh, did that for a while and then did uh, Freedom Train and a bunch of other children's theater. So I toured the country in this little van with eight other actors carrying our costumes and, you know, living the high diddly D life. When did you get your equity card and how? Oh. <laughs> well, I came here in 1949. I came to the American Theater Wing. I was a. Well done. I was a. Uh, a veteran of World War II and uh, came here on the GI Bill and uh, studied with Herbert Berghoff and uh, um, I I didn't get a, my equity card I, I get, actually got a SAG card and an af after card before I got an equity card uh, a SAG card first and uh, then I guess is now you had to have a uh, to be offered a professional job or a job that required you joining one of these unions and you had to have the money or a source to get the money to pay your initiation fee which was uh, um, sizable if you were unemployed at the time <laughs> See, if they would wait a while you got some of your pay but you had to join before you went to rehearsal uh, it was uh, but it was, I think, 52. Um, I was in the first play that ever moved from off-Broadway to Broadway. It was called End is a Man. It had started as a project at Actors Studio, where I've been a member since 1952. 
And we went to what was then called the Theater de Lee on Christopher Street. I think it's oh, now called the. That's where I am. The is that where you are? Hotel. Hotel. Well, we we uh, Andy's a man was about the Citadel uh, in in Charleston, South Carolina. All boys, I think. Ben Gazar had the leading role, and uh, a bad group of cats. But we were uh, <laughs> we were received so well by the by the 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 main press in New York, and back in those days there were like, what, 14, 15 papers, daily wow. papers in, in New York. And they came down, I think they were the, we were one of the first that they ever had gone off Broadway to review, so we got good wow. reviews and we came up to the, uh, what was in the Vanderbilt Theater on 48th Street, which is now a parking lot, <laughs> and uh, we may have been the last theater persons in that theater before it went into a parking lot. Wow. I don't like to think because of our performances, but <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's how I, uh, that's how I started. Well, you, got this, you said you got the SAG card uh, uh, first, yeah. uh, and in those days, I guess there was a lot in New York City of both film, of us, film and television, and theater was all being done here. All of all of television was live then and was all here. I mean, there was radio too. That was radio was right. there, right? Radio wasn't dead yet. Doing straight plays on radio. You know, oh, right. a screen, a, a film actor couldn't work live television. The greatest training for, for live television was summer stock, where you did a you uh -huh. rehearsed a week and then you put the butter on, you know. <laughs> and then you'd be rehearsing another play in the daytime and performing that one at night. Yeah. And, and uh, that's great, great training for live television because we would, our show would rehearse a week and then bam, it's on. Mm -hmm. And now you've got all of this technical things and you'll be, you'll be doing a scene and you're aware that this lady is supposed to come through this door, you know, and keep the, the story moving. They're having trouble with her zipper. Yeah. And so you, are now if you were, had been, had a little experience, your head went, and you're gonna say, she's never gonna turn this way or that way, because she's not gonna turn so that the camera is gonna see that she had not zipped in the back here. Uh, it was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and very good, and screen people didn't want to do it because it scared that dickens out of them. But they don't, they don't really want to do stage. Uh, and they used to couldn't until you mic'd them. <laughs> now you mic everybody. Hell, we're mic'd in, in uh, 1776, a little, a little round, roundabout theater. 500 people. My gosh, I don't need to be mic'd. But, they, <laughs> but they're, you know, mic everybody. And, but the stage thing, you see, and the reason they can get away with paying you so much less than they pay you films, is that belongs to the actor. I forget about the, the director and the writer. They do it. But on the moment that this story is being told, that curtain goes up and that bunch of crazy actors <laughs> get out there and they tell that story. And we get the peanut right away. We're the monkey that does the trick and the audience has the peanut. It's very heavy. And to, to play as we do in 1776, we are telling a story that there's a hunger for today. We're telling folks that politicians weren't always as sleazy as they are now. There was a time when they argued and they fought and all this sort of a thing, but they were honorable people. And uh, it, there's a hunger now. And to be on stage with these 26 other, there's 27 of us in that play, wow. and, and, and to tell this story when, when they know how the bloody thing ends, but we on stage don't know where we're going to get the, 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 the thing signed or not. And because we don't know, 
they forget that they know and they go along with us. And when, when finally John Adams says, it's done. Uh, it's done. <laughs> Generally, there's this round of applause like, oh, good going, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it. Oh, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing that Pat, in 48 years of acting, has never been able to form a strong opinion about anything. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Forgive me. But, uh, <laughs> is it hard to work in a small theater with 27 people? On how big is your stage? Oh, no, gosh, it's a big, big stage, and we're on a turntable. No, no, it's a big, big stage, and uh, the, the Roundabout is a wonderful theater. If you ever get a chance to play there, it's a wonderful theater. 500 people, and there's no bad seats in it. See, I mean, mm. it's great. But it's, uh, no, it's, uh, um, actually, it's quite roomy. It's mm -hmm. really quite roomy. <laughs> <laughs> And they do wonderful things there, too. Well, Chuck, uh, you know, I want to be, we're talking about large casts and all that. How many are with, with you? Oh, my God. How many do we have? We're, we're not, many, for a musical, we're not that long. It seems big, though. Yeah, it seems big because all the performances are big. I don't know. There's like uh, 25, maybe? 25, 30. Yeah. Yeah. And relating to, I mean, obviously, because I know that you relate well. I mean, how did how did that evolve? Oh, my God. Seven years ago, Pam and I did a workshop down at West Beth Theater. And, God, what a journey it's been. And and as Bob knows, I mean, a lot of times, a lot of shows these days take that long to bring to realize them. But uh, seven years ago, we did a workshop down at uh, West Beth Theatre Company. Uh, right. the, and did you have to audition? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even though you did that too? Oh, sure. Yes. In yeah. fact, mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah. they auditioned almost every, every yeah. black person in New York. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, um, yeah big audition we did, process. We auditioned for it. Uh, yeah. Joe Layton was then yeah. on board as as the oh, uh, director. Yeah, uh, and uh, and did you know when you first went in that there, that you were in? Yeah, I kind of got a feeling. I did too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, really. You you know when you after a while you know when you're on the beam and when you're just out the door. You know when they're when they when they there's a light bulb that comes over their heads when they yeah. look at you and they go, oh yeah. It's a, it's one. it's something once mm -hmm. you've done this enough times you can kind of get a sense mm. when you leave the audition whether they mm. liked you or they yeah. you know they said thank you yeah <laughs> they were just thank you for coming yes thank you usually <laughs> it was my worst auditions that i that i get really yeah. really yeah. Yeah. You, walk, uh, you walk out and you think that was the worst they hate me they're all like shaking their heads like this and next day you get a phone call yeah. the mm. ones that the ones that i do it's like yeah nailed it mm. yeah. yeah god this one's mine and i yeah. walk out and you never hear from them so, again so you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't have that you didn't have that experience of, of the light bulb going on you think oh my god i've blown it right no well sometimes it's some most of the time it happened like that but mm. uh with jekyll and hyde in particular i that happened to be one of those things that I felt, I know this role's mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't even audition for it yet, and I said, this one's mine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh -huh. So it was just yeah. my job to convince everybody else that it was mine. Well, it took a long time again to nurture that long. Were you in on the beginning of the No, the show, the show actually was conceived by Frank Wildhorn when he yeah. was in college in 1980 or something. And, uh, but the first production of it, workshop or whatever, was done in 1990. 
so it's been it's been seven going years. for yeah seven eight years. I got involved with it four years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I even did a part in it. <laughs> That's right. I played a cockney. Okay. You never know what you're going to have to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, go back to the West Back Inn. You, still, you, did, you, you began down there. We, we did the workshop for two weeks. It was a short run. It was four weeks. Was actually. it four weeks? Yeah, oh. four weeks. Okay. Yeah. It seemed like two weeks. Well, My memory is fading. It, it, it I mean, you could not get your friends or your agents. And I remember that. It was incredible. It yeah. was a small, small theater. Yeah. And because Cy Coleman was doing it and Joe yeah, Layton, yeah. they wanted to see what their new musical was. Right. I mean, I had my agents, and people were so upset because they could not get in. You couldn't get in. It was you a know? hot, hot and ticket. It was, I mean, and all the stars came through, and everybody mm. wanted to see what it was. But mm. it's still with, you know, Cy Coleman, who has won, you know, numerous awards. It still took seven years to bring this to Broadway. Right. Now, why is that? Um, I think for a, a couple of reasons. Number one, um, I think it was the subject matter. Mm -hmm. I think people were very afraid of it. Um, if you don't know, it's about life on 42nd Street. I play a hooker. And uh, it's about prostitutes and pimps and all that. And people couldn't see beyond that to see that it's a really a story about life. And it's about relationships. And, um, I think it's mostly about relationships. Yeah, it's about relationships. Right. But people were, and, and at that time, you know, most of the musicals that were coming to Broadway were happy spectacles. You know, you had a few like Les Mis, but they were big spectacles. And this was a sh an intimate kind of a show about people. Mm -hmm. and, and everybody, Broadway, I mean, why don't you take it off Broadway? No one could really see it as a Broadway Jill show. Joe Layton's original vision yeah. was for it to be an off-Broadway show. Uh, off show at the, what was that theater on uh, 23rd Street, the, pa the Paramount, not the Paramount, I can't call the name of it now, but they were going to gut someplace out yeah. and do an whole environmental it. thing. But uh, it was the producers that said, no, it's a Broadway show. They clung to that idea. They never, I mean, seven years, many, many projects that Cy has been involved with have come and gone. But this was one show that the producers really believed in, mm -hmm. because it's probably some of the best musical music that Cy has written, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And it also hits somewhere so deep inside. Mm -hmm. um, the people that I know that I talk to after the show come to me and say, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you've it's touched nice. me. Yeah, especially the women. Yeah, it's the very, women. It's very it's interesting. It's a, it has become a woman's story, and this yeah. it was written by men. Yeah. You can figure that one out. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeff, oh, we can do it. We left you at ACT. How did you get from ACT? Um, I, um, and was you might explain what ACT is. ACT is the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And I finished the training program there, and then I was in the company one year, and they offered me another year. But I, uh, at the end of the first year, we came and did the league auditions, the famous league auditions that used to happen. And, uh, we came and presented our scenes at Juilliard and all the agents were there and we had no idea they didn't tell us because they wanted to keep us at ACT we were cheap labor <laughs> in those days uh, we had no idea uh, that every New York agent would be there and would be uh, courting us immediately thereafter and sure enough all of us in our particular class had you know several offers from different agents uh, Ellen Flack at Duva Flack found me and courted me and wrote to me and called me regularly and, uh, you know, beckoned me and made me come to New York to Isn't that unusual audition. for an agent to do that with an unknown? <coughs> I guess so. <laughs> Make what you like of it. Make what you like of it. It's the first time I, I, I've heard yeah, of it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. 
It, that was a wonderful thing. I guess they have an equivalent these days for the, the training programs. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. They, they do. They're, 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 yeah, the league yeah. auditions. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, I ended up here and, and, and shortly thereafter went off on a tour with the Alabama Shakespeare Festival and couldn't sit around and wait. Had been offered to cover Kevin Klein in Pirates of Penzance. And I thought, who is Kevin Klein? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went and saw it in the park, and he fairly uh, impressed me. So next time it came around, that job to cover, they offered it to me again, and I took it and uh, did that. That was my first Have time. you stayed with the same agent? No. I should have. I might as well have just stayed with her, because uh, I've worked with a lot of good people, and she's as good as any. But, you know, I was nervous, and things didn't go well at one point or another, and I switched and switched. And, you know, I'll probably stay where I am now, forever, because they're yeah. doing a good job. Let me pick up, uh, Jay, you, you were, we, we le where we left, left off, you were playing the violin mm -hmm. in South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I wanted to bring you to New York, because oh. I can see you down there playing uh, scales uh, yeah. on the violin that your siblings d hated. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so, but, but go on. And then also about the development of the piece you're in now. Cause it's, uh, okay. Um, well, uh, as I said, I played the violin, and I was... Uh, my big sister was the one who was always in the plays in school, and she's ahead of me. You know, she was off in college by the time I hit adolescence. And so finally, um, someone dared me to audition for the school play. Because I was so shy, they thought it was a big joke, and they dared me, and it was the diary of Anne Frank, and I got part of Anne. And, and my whole personality changed. <laughs> you know, the glasses came off, I got contact lenses. <laughs> my whole personality um, And it was funny, because I think creativity is like... Someone made this analogy one time. It's like, you know how cracks in the driveway, you know, weeds will find its way through. If you're, you know, you haven't found acting yet, you, you are creative by playing the violin, or you paint, or you write, and creativity will find its way, I think, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But when I found the thing I was really right for, mm -hmm. everything fell into place, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Things come to you, and mm -hmm. doors open, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then, what was your other question? Oh, uh, how, yeah, the development of the people. How the doors oh. open. Oh, yeah. well, and then I, let's see, I went, um, went away to college at Florida State in Tallahassee, but I dropped out, which is not something I particularly recommend, but what happened is I started getting acting work, mm -hmm. and uh, I kept thinking I would come back to school, and I just never did. I, I moved to New York, and I, too, I didn't have an agent, I didn't have a job, I don't know what I thought. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, it's just it's ignorance is bliss. I had $200 and an unemployment claim. Oh, and, you know, someone I'd known in school who had a couch that I yeah. could stay with. And mm. I bopped around and got offered, um, I had auditioned for the national tour of Crimes of the Heart. This was in 81 or so, I think. And I was doing a show out of town, and the person that represented me at the time called me and said, well, I have bad news and good news. Which do you want first? And I said, well, I don't want any bad news, but I guess the bad news first. And he said, well, they canceled the tour, Crimes of the Heart. And I said, my heart sank, and he said, well, the good news is that Maya Dillon has given notice they want you to replace her on Broadway. Uh, well, no, I don't even remember the rest of the conversation. I just <laughs> <laughs> you know? So then, then, you know, I got an agent, and wow. so it's kind of an unusual turn of events. Is that how you got the agent? Yeah, that's how I, uh, I mean, once I was in that play, then people could come and see me in something. And mm -hmm. It's a whole catch-22, because mm -hmm. agents want to see be able to see your work, but you kind of need an agent to get any work, so yeah. it's... Uh, mm -hmm. But everybody, you know, everybody has a story like that. Oh, some sure. kind of cockamamie story of how they first got a job. Mm -hmm. And if, I think tenacity is 
you know, a really, really helps. important thing. You just and keep... ignorance, too. But also, I think you have, uh, actors uh, learn to accept rejection in auditions of that kind in a way very different from how writers feel. If a mm. writer's rejected, that's the end of the world for him. Mm. Yeah. But you have to expect that over and yeah, over you get and, and, and be able to take it yeah. and mm -hmm. go around. But now, what's interesting today is so many of these projects have taken years to, to develop. Now, what in your case, what happened? Well, is, in my uh, case, I'm in this play called As Bees and Honey Drown which is a play by Douglas Carter Bean and it's a project of the drama department which is a theater company that I'm a member of and it's the first original play we've done and Doug wrote not particularly with me in mind but with you know having actors some of whom are in the cast now uh, reading those parts as he wrote it I mean they first read the first act before there was a second act and and it got mm -hmm. developed sort of through this company which was a really particularly delightful way I think for him as well to kind right. of be able to hear people in the roles and um, actually the girl that had been reading my part wasn't available and they offered it to me and I kind of I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> I, mean, I, I really felt I wasn't right for the part and I but it was just so it was such a difficult role and I, I really believe that you should try hard things I mean that would be my piece of but advice describe the role okay um, I play this character with the unlikely name of Alexa Vere de Vere <coughs> who is a um, I don't want to give it away, but she's, she's this character who goes around and, and uh, contacts young budding talents and takes them out to lunch and shows them around and introduces them to people and it turns out she's not all she's supposed to be. And it's a very, very funny character and I speak a mile a minute and carry on. And, uh, with, a very, but, uh, with an exquisite British accent. And yeah. With a, <laughs> but totally unlike in appearance, her appearance this morning. No, that's and right. and that's part of the thrillingness of the, mm -hmm. she's two different people. Talk about two roles. That's right. It really is I have two sort of the same thing in a way. Because and, and, uh, but, but of course, the, the, with the British accent, you are speaking 90 miles an hour. I know, it's, it's really, fantastic. sometimes I don't make those curves. She's a rascal. She's uh, not that's giving it. away too much. It's just great. She's not a scoundrel, she's a rascal. But I was sort of intimidated by the role when I right. when I was offered it and then I thought no you know you should say yes to things mm -hmm. when in doubt mm -hmm. don't don't not take something because it's difficult I mean would you turn Hamlet down because yeah. it was hard you would right. want to play it so. was the direction uh, in in carrying you that you had to speak at that hundred words a minute clip or was that something that was developed within uh, the, the show itself? That's an interesting question. I don't quite recall. I think it, I think it sort of developed in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. Because, it, you know, she is literally, literally and figuratively a fast talker. You know, yeah. she says things and the conversation's fast, gone somewhere yeah. before the unsuspecting person knows mm -hmm. where it's headed. So it, it's sort of... And, but I also think it is in the writing, because she has these long run-on sentences that segue. You know, there are a lot of non-sequiturs and, you know... It's that kind of mind that sort of skips mm -hmm. along. They jump from one thing to another. Mm. Mm -hmm. and it's, oh. been, it's been a great success. Yeah, yeah it's going right. well. Was it hard to memorize, dear? It was hard to memorize. And we had a sort of a truncated rehearsal period because we did it under the showcase code. We could only rehearse a certain number of hours a day. Mm, and um, I mean, I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown <laughs> when it was wrong. <laughs> and the first few previews, I was just, it was great in a way because I, d I couldn't really get nervous about performing I mean I couldn't really get self-conscious because I was had I had to concentrate so so much on just what I was saying you know does that make sense you yeah, know yeah, I just yeah, tried yeah. to mm -hmm. well particularly when there's no through line yeah non yeah. Yeah, really you have hard. to interrupt your own yeah. self with a new thought mm. it's like you have two tracks going in your mind all the yeah. time when, you, when all of you began, it's always a question to me, not knowing anything about this, how in the world do you memorize? Uh, and some people 
Are you all good at it, or is it something that, again, is a part of a discipline of that you require? Hmm? I don't think of myself as being particularly mm. good at it, but... To me, I kind of feel it's the easiest part. Really? Yeah. yeah I, oh, I'm <laughs> sorry. The cry of anguish. Most people, uh, one of the biggest comments when you meet people that see a show, they say, how do you memorize all, that, th all those lines? Mm. It's, it's not That's as difficult, it's the least of my troubles. <laughs> Walking is the big one. <laughs> Doing coming up a trouble within. I saw Barrymore the other night, and I, I realized I was in therapy as he joked about going up, you know, as he does frequently in that play. I was convulsing. <laughs> I realized my brain cells are beginning right. to come out my ears or something. <laughs> Words are starting to slip out. At this point, I mean, oh. soon I'm sure that's, you know, coming right. my way, is hiring right. someone to Run lines. work and, and all that. Oh. And in TV, you have to find yeah. somebody because it happens so quickly. That, what do you do? Yeah. How do you Well. Uh, I've always been able to memorize fairly easily. I've got to say, I'm 73 years old now, and and uh, you've memorized that pretty good. Well, but it gets harder for me to memorize. Uh, I generally do it by myself. I also find, particularly on screen things, uh, that if I write it down, particularly if I print it, uh, which I have to do slowly because I'm not a fast printer. Uh, that helps helps me. Oh, wow. I was in a I was I in a that. play once Did called Festival. Know? Simon Bell Speedwack wrote it. Paul Henry dead now was in it. Betty Field dead now was in it. <laughs> but uh, we were we were in Boston, and and the Speedwacks were very prolific. They could write a new third act overnight and get a good night's sleep. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Henry. <laughs> memorized his part, first line, second line, third line, and he said him that no matter what you said, he said it's there. <laughs> and he stayed about two rewrites behind us. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was hilarious, sir, uh, <laughs> for us. The audience didn't understand <laughs> anything with that. But uh, I bring that up only as, as a way of saying that, uh, of course, you know, shows don't go out of town anymore. We used to have a, they didn't do previews. Went to New Haven, where you never got a good review from the Yale. They didn't like anything. You know? yeah. Not cat on the hot tin roof, not dark top, nothing. Not Jamie, nothing. No. They like nothing. You go to Boston, and you start to get a guy named Elliot Norton in those days. He's a very good reviewer. And then to Philadelphia, and then in. And uh, it was a, it was a, a kind of a joyful way, I think, to bring a play in because you were away from home, mm -hmm. and and the cast and crew got to be more of a family. Mm -hmm. Than you do when you, instead of going to the hotel together, you know, you, each person goes their own separate way home when you're previewed here. But that wasn't what I was asked, it was <laughs> It gets harder to memorize. <laughs> <laughs> but I can still do it. <laughs> you know, there are, are things that keep coming up and on, on the seminars, and they're kind of truisms. And, and one of the things on going out of town, not only is it so much better because you don't have people coming in every night and hearing, oh, they're in trouble or I hear or whatever. You might hear the same thing come through, but it's not as imminent as that. But also, 
that you are completely away from all the problems of home, family, children, everything else, and you do work out together, and you do sit and listen to each other's thoughts on it. And that's come up over and over again of, of what a pity that that doesn't exist and that it's become economically impossible. That's the answer to it. Mm. The other thing that's come up again today is when asked what was the most important people or what should be the most important people in your lives and it's been your parents because they're going to have to support you mm. while you're looking for a job and friends because there's a, a wonderful networking that goes on uh -huh. and I think in the theater more than any other place they're not competitive at all they couldn't get the job but you go for it mm -hmm. and I hear the audition is being held wherever it might be and so I said cultivate your friends and cultivate your parents as well. <laughs> They'll both be of enormous help to you. And it's come out here too with this friendship that you've talked about, the, a friend telling you where there was a job or where there was an audition or what mm -hmm. you did. Did any of you have parents that didn't want you to go? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to do yeah, that because are. we haven't really gone into your background of coming in here. And well, I, I went a totally different route than anybody else. I, I, I was a financier. I worked on Wall Street for a number of years. I, I went to school for finance, and um, uh, E.F. Hutton wanted and existed. And um, uh, I acted, you know, just on the side community theater and, and uh, high school and, and a little bit in college. Where was this? In, in, in uh, Long Island, Manhasset. And uh, my parents kind of went along with it because it was, you know, it was, you know, he's just having fun, and, and that was fine. And uh, I, I was in school getting my finance degree, and I, I was doing a show my senior year, which was Godspell. And uh, uh, after the show, a number of people came up to me and said, you know, you're really good. Did you ever think of doing this as a career? And I, that's when the light bulb kind of went off, and I'd go home, and I'd sit and watch TV, and, and you know, I'd say, you know, I'm surrounded by this all my life. You know, film and TV and stage and, and whatever. If I don't try it, I'll probably say, what if, mm. all my life. Mm. So I, I started to get into it. I mean, I bought the trade papers, and uh, I knew nobody in the business. And um, I mean, my parents never even had a, a record player. I don't know where my interest came from. I have no mm. idea. Mm. And uh, as far as dedication goes, I think that, that developed because of my, originally because of my need to, to, um, to succeed in something that my parents said no to uh, you know so i became a real go-getter for it and uh was they, your father in wall street or what was your father no he was a civil engineer they're both deceased now um so they but they they didn't really they didn't buy it at all but they lived long enough to be proud of you well they got to see a little bit of the glory but, mm -hmm. but most of the pain, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, which uh, you know, they're seeing it from the best seats in the house now. But, <laughs> but uh, they, I'm glad they got to see you a little bit. Right. Um, but that's, that was my route. And as, as Pat mentioned before, going, going out doing summer stock in one week, uh, hoo-hahs all around the country, that was my training ground. I, I never had any training as an actor, really. I, I lucked into, to, I could sing. So that got me... Um, that got me roles, and I, I worked in the Light Opera of Manhattan, which was doesn't exist any longer. But it's a, it was a rep company that did Gilbert and Sullivan and operettas and whatever. And we rehearsed during the day and performed a show at night, and rehearsed the next show while we were performing that one. And that one on that was 52 weeks out of the year. Oh, so boy. that's that's how I learned. It was trial by fire, 
Right. And the best, the best way of learning is in front of the audience, I think, mm -hmm. to see what really works well, and what doesn't. Now, in talking of about the learning process, I, I'm going to have to interrupt you, and we're going to take a break, and we're just going to stand up and stretch and, mm -hmm. and come right back again. And in the meantime, I hope all of you will begin to think about the questions that you want to ask this extraordinary panel and uh, push out how it is that they work in the theater. Some of them have made it sound very easy, really. <laughs> no problem. Oh, well, that was a mistake making it All sound easy. All you do is show up. <laughs> so uh, this is the part of this that is a stretch and good. But don't go away, please. Thank you. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. And we're continuing the seminar on the performance. And this group of performers that are gathered here today discussing what it is to work in the theater is a really a most interesting and exciting one. So I'm going to let them continue how they got there, and how they're going to remain there. That's the most important thing. I was talking when we, when we first were standing over there, and I thought, boy, this is really interesting that they presume that we know something about working in the theater just because we have a job now. <laughs> <laughs> we ought to talk about uh, a little bit, uh, Isabel brought it up, about... Uh, uh, networking, otherwise known as who you know, mm. uh -huh. uh, and I know that uh, you know there is very very strongly a Northwestern mafia. There's a Yale drama school mafia. I just learned today there's a higher university mafia, <laughs> uh, which I was not aware of. But that's that's good. So uh, I don't know, Robert. You know, you, you're talking about it. You know, who you know. Yeah. Well, I, I I've always been and probably will always continue to be the worst at networking. Mm -hmm. I, I have a very awkward time of going up to people that I don't know because I'm supposed to know them uh, and, and introducing myself and, and all that. And uh, all through my career, I felt, well, look, as long as I just do my work and do it as best as I can, it'll all work out that way. And thank God, for the most part, that it has. So I haven't had to push through all that networking stuff. But it is so important to know people, and it's, it's so important to, to uh, make yourself open and accessible to meeting uh, these people. And um, uh, as I, I said before, it's, it's very important. The who you know is very important, but it's the what you know that's going to keep you there. You've got you've to pay off once they, they say, okay, I'll hire you. you know, so uh, that's, what, that's how I feel about You really make such a big commitment over the years when this show was out of town. And how many different places were you? We did, um, well, I, we, this is the third production, technically, that I've done of it. I did right. it in a production in Houston and a mini tour from Houston to Seattle. And, uh, and then we did a, a national tour where we hit like 29 cities in 30, no, 30-something 30 cities in like 29 weeks. <laughs> uh, did you find that what Pat said about being out of town, being, you know, perforce a family was helpful in, in the evolution of the piece. Yeah, because it's, it's a, you, you feel almost like you, it's a freedom to take risks. 
uh, the pressures of New York, it's got such a stigma to it, you know, to, um, to just do your stuff and to play and, and to make changes and people are not going to be overly critical about it and, and uh, also you're away from, from your everyday life so you can focus more on your work and, and just do that. Uh, and you've got this tight little family that you're with every single day. Now, there yeah. was a possibility that you might not have come into New York. When was that decision made? Uh, or had you always intended to come into New York? Well, I personally always did. But, <laughs> but I, and everyone else always said, uh, I mean, the producers said, yeah, we're coming in, but you always had that doubt. Right. And, of course, I always had that doubt that I was probably not going to be coming with it. You know, who know what right. kind of guarantees do you have? Yeah. Uh, I didn't have any contracts saying, okay, you're our man if we come to Broadway. So yeah. it was... It was faith. It was blind faith. You know, now, are there I, other it was a project that we that we were doing, and I believed in. Huh. And whether it came in or not, I was still proud to do it and very happy to do it. And I got so much out of it. But this is just icing on the cake. Now, are there other companies playing? No. Well, they opened. A, they just opened a Belgium production. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're doing it in Dutch. Uh -huh. <laughs> wow. That should be Rush up your Dutch. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but they'll they'll do a national tour. I think in '99. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, all hell will probably break, break loose. Mm -hmm. well, Jeff, did, did, the, did you audition for... Sideshow? Yeah. And oh, were you no. told... Uh, Johnson no. Liff, the casting office, uh, called and said, use this guy, he's what you're looking for, and they did. And we did a reading, a, a backers audition, virtually, one of the relatively early ones, and they told me afterwards, they said, this role is yours as long as this thing exists. And I thought, mm -hmm. finally, you know, <laughs> it comes easily. They called me two months later and said, uh, we're doing another backers audition, be here. And I said, I can't, I'm going to a writer's conference in Indiana. And that they tried to rearrange it and all this, because David Geffen was coming and whatnot, whatnot, and I couldn't come because I'd committed somewhere else. They got Chris Invar to do it, who I had just seen in Floyd Collins, who was a wonderful, amazing, intelligent, wonderful singer. And uh, I came back from New Harmony, from the uh, writers' conference, and uh, I called them up. And sure enough, it was not just my role anymore. So I had to lobby, and I called my agents. And I don't know if any of that was effective, but ultimately they decided on me. And uh, it, it was a scary time. You know, one of the, nobody really thought it was possible to make the life a hit. I mean, the people who first heard about how harsh it was, how uh, uh, tragic and harsh, and, and as they say, gritty nowadays, you know, and then it became the hit it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, who would believe that you could bring in that show? I would have thought if I were reading that there was a, going to be uh, something about a, a Siamese twins. Yeah. Uh, 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 what is it? I wouldn't have been a backer of that, just, you know, uh, yeah. thinking, how could, it, how could it be made to work? And then it does work. Yeah. And then Ben Bradley gives it the biggest rave review I think I've ever seen him write. Yeah. 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 Uh, every word of it uh, mm -hmm. praise, and even the idea of it appealed to him very much. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. Did you go out of town at all? No. We workshopped it at the Richard Rogers Theater, in the very theater right that then. it plays now. Mm -hmm. Now, was that good? That must have been a help. Wasn't that it? was a great thing, and they saw it on a Broadway stage. The backers came and saw it. Now, this thing works at a distance, mm -hmm. not just at 890 in a rehearsal studio. That's and a brand new approach, I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. it's been done. Well, that was the turning point for us. We did it on a, on a stage. Yeah. Very similar to the one we were on now. We never uh, went on a town. And uh, mm -hmm. they saw it on a stage, and all of a sudden they said, okay, I can see if this is going to work. Yeah. What about off-Broadway? Do you do you workshop for off-Broadway productions? Do you do well, you I'm open do you rehearse and open cold? You, I've, I've never um, 
followed you in that? Well, we, as I said before, we were on this uh, contract where we could only have X number of performances. I can't remember, 16, 15, something like that. But we, had, we did it uh, off Off-Broadway and then moved it to an Off-Broadway theater, so it was sort of similar. But Ben Brantley came in and saw us in that first space. What rehearsed for the time, off-off-Broadway? How much rehearsal? Mm -hmm. The average amount, it was uh, three and a half weeks or something. But we had short days because that contract protects the actors from, if you're not being paid, you can only, they can only use you so many hours a day. What is the difference in, in, in your actors, in your pay? Uh, off, off, Broadway, but what kind of a contract? Well, there's different ones. Mm -hmm. This one was, was really showcase code, which is you just do it for the experience and you're free to take another job. However, if you get offered one, they lose you overnight, you know. So it's kind of like you have to sort of will yourself to stay put and, and be devoted to the project. Um, but there's all, I think there's a whole, there's a whole They're tier of different They're contracts, mm -hmm. Lark A, B. Mm -hmm. uh, Depends on the right seating. Yes, yeah. so it's based contract. on the number of seats in the house. Seats. And, uh, and, it's, and uh, also a, a favored nations kind of a thing. And if you haven't run into that, you'll run into it. <laughs> and it means that nobody can get any better than you, and you can't get any better than anybody else. In other words, you're all in the same money boat. Wise. Money wise. <laughs> it, was, it was a great device thought of by producers. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, and then sometimes they pay you and you know food stamps and that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you're working. You're working, and right. everybody gets the same amount of food stamps. Right. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it is. Uh, but say the I did before I I did this. I was at the McCarter Theater. In Princeton, which is a very good theater, if you ever get a chance to play there, and Emily Mann is a fine artistic director. Uh, but there, and it's, all, I think it's called a Lark D, I think theater too. But because it is in Princeton, they can pay you less in Princeton. They have to pay you if you're on Forty Fifth and Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, Don't you get per diem when you're on the town? Oh, well now, what what they do now? They they used to do this this thing used to get rehearsal pay, a Broadway show no matter what. Right. And unless you were a single person living with your folks, you couldn't eat on rehearsal pay. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were in the show and it opened in, on Monday and closed on Wednesday, you didn't get, but you know, well you got your two weeks guarantee of your full pay. But believe me, you would have been better off working at the post office uh, <laughs> uh, as far as having money to put in your pocket. But uh, it nowadays under the Lord contract, they have to once you they, the rehearsal pay and performance pay is the same money. Yeah, and uh, um, like you, you know, you, you you guys will learn. Yeah. <laughs> I look. Picasso said, "I want to be so rich that I can afford to live like a poor man." You know, that's <laughs> perfect for an actor. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible way to make a living. Wonderful way to live a life. I agree. Yeah, I agree. It's, and you say that the life never went out of town either, speaking no, of No, it was mm -hmm. a, that was the scariest thing, I think. It was a fishbowl. We knew that yeah. was what it was going to be. But yeah. we invested seven years. I was ready. <laughs> I don't care what happens with this show, I'm ready. <laughs> and after seven years, we were so glad to see it up there. We didn't care what anybody said. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, do they have other companies of that? No. No, oh, that was it. Planning. Just, just the um, well. Yes, they are. They're they're planning a London company. They're planning a Australia, uh, Australian, Japanese. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, there's been a lot of interest right. in it. So it's beginning to have a life that will go on for years oh, and years. Yeah. It'll more than seven yeah. years. So it's seven lean years, seven rich. That's right. I do yeah. We're going to go turn to questions now, and oh. there are so many. <laughs> I'm, sure it'll be a I don't, I'm sorry. That's all right. We'll get to you. Of course. Mm -hmm. Hold it. <laughs> I've been Our first question. <laughs> My name is John Francis Fox. My question is for Pat Engel. First, what was it about 1776 that compelled you to make your musical theater debut in that show? And can you also tell us how the GI Bill affected your career? Uh, okay. Um, I, I liked the show uh, when I saw it originally. And, uh, and Howard De Silva and I were, were buddies. Uh, and uh, and Benjamin Franklin is a wonderful role. Good Lord, if you ever get a chance to play it, I mean, it's just a wonderful uh, role. So having never done a musical, and wondering, you know, if I would ever get a chance to do it, when this thing popped up, it came out of the blue because they originally had George Hearns, who was a, an accomplished and a renowned musical performer. But it came up. I came up with an audition, and I got the role. Now the GI Bill. Uh, enabled me to come to the theater wing and study and it was something that that World War II veterans got uh, that the government paid for you to go to college and that's why there's so darn many uh, college graduates of, of my generation because uh, we you know had this wonderful thing you could use it for Oh, to buy a home, or because they set so many thousand dollars for each person, and you could either use it for school, home, whatever, and uh, so that uh, uh, I think that probably the GI Bill just made it easier. I would have come I I anyway uh, to New York from the University of Texas, probably. Hi, my name is Tony Mansker. I'm a drama major at NYU, and I wanted to ask all the performers. Um, I know you guys are performing your show almost seven, eight times a week. I know you said you've been with Jekyll and Hyde for almost four years. Does the repetitive cycle of doing it almost daily become monotonous? And I'd add to that, and how do you keep it fresh? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead, Tony. Yeah. I, I would say that the freshness comes because <coughs> of the unique nature of the theater. Uh, every night you go out there, it's, it's, a, it's a new animal and a new beast. Mm. Uh, there's a new group of people out there, which, and, and, which is an intrinsic character to the play. So um, the freshness comes from your desire to do the best job that you can do that night, from your uh, exploring the part, uh, being willing to be open to new choices every night, or, or within, a, within a certain parameter. I mean, you don't want to like do something totally ridiculous and throw everything off, throw everyone else off. But you have to be open to, well, maybe if I, if I put that pause, we all would love to put pauses <laughs> on. <laughs> if I wait a little bit on that line and then lay it in there, it might hit, you know? And you try it, and, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's where the freshness for me uh, comes from. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, like you said, the audience is different every single night. Uh, so that, that fuels you. Also, I'm different every single day. Mm -hmm. uh, so I bring to my performance that night who I am that day, what, what happened to me yeah. that day. And it may be minuscule, you know. To me, it feels huge. But to somebody else, it may be, you know, such a little thing. Mm -hmm. And also my fellow performers, they're all different every day. Mm -hmm. So some days the gears are just working so well because, you know, 
I don't know, the moon is full. And then, <laughs> and then other days, it's just, it's, it doesn't. Oh. And what, you're ha what happens on those days that it doesn't? You've got an audience out there that doesn't care whether <laughs> well, you've got that a, you've day got a, is not a good day for you. You've got to uh, trust that the story you're telling is still coming across. Mm -hmm. And uh, try not to fight it so much and, and go with it, but still maintain what's, what you're trying to tell, I think. That's uh, where technique comes you in. you have a exactly. mechanism to get back to it? Excuse me? Uh -huh. Do you have a mechanism that you know that you're, you're off balance on this or your, your gear is, is, is not meshing? I try, How I, to get back to it? Do you, well, I try, do you to, um, I, I try to make, get it off of me, mm -hmm. you know, get all the attention off of me and just put it on the people <coughs> that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Say, okay, stop trying to make it work, work off of what, you, what you're getting. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that keeps it, whatever, you, whatever comes out is still going to be alive and fresh because it's, it's what you're working with. So that's, that's the way I'm going to do it. Are you going to say something to Cameron? What were you going to add to that? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think we probably have so all have had similar experiences. I was just thinking just then when you're saying that, that sometimes when things go wrong, and it might be that someone coughed on a punchline mm -hmm. or, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or some, a, a prop fell backstage, and it's sort of like when you're telling a joke in a restaurant and the waiter walks up, right? When you're, you know, <laughs> setting up the joke, you have to kind of regroup and figure out your, there's a part of your brain going uh, that you're telling a story and, you, and if you really love the story you're telling and you're familiar with it, even if things get thrown and they're different, mm -hmm. you're very, you, you trust that story. So you exactly. figure out, right. you sort of instinctively figure out, oh, they didn't understand this, I need to kind of underline this, mm -hmm. set, set this part of the story up so that when so-and-so has the punchline, it will, it will fire and you kind of, in, you develop that as you go along in your life and in a run of a show, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Hi, my name's Erica Umpenauer, and I'm also a drama student at NYU. And I was just wondering, for the whole panel, what was your most embarrassing moment on stage? <laughs> Anybody. Which one? <laughs> the most. Uh, oh, good first Lord. play I was ever in, in high school, I came out on stage and tripped and fell down. <laughs> I think I haven't topped that. <laughs> oh, God. For me, I was um, in a play, and we had the critics there, and I blanked out. I was in the middle of a song, lyrics, and usually I'm very good at making something up. I started mumbling. It was not pretty. <laughs> I was on stage with an actor who threw up. We had heard that he was ill, and, we were all, and then we got very, it was almost, it was the last scene of the play, when the, everybody kind of comes out on stage, it was this play Wild Honey, and it was Sir Ian McKellen, and he was ill, and we, but we'd made it all the way through the show, and right before, it was a, um, rewritten by Michael Frayn to be sort of a farce. And right before the end of the show, I had a love scene with him. Mm. And I'm bashful, so I'm facing away from him, and I hear him getting sick. And I'm thinking, I'm going to bring the curtain down. And I'm thinking, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have to, you know, I'm thinking, what do I say? And then he kind of regrouped and carried on. And I'm not even sure if the audience knew that he was sick. And that apparently the ASM had told all the actors in the wings, okay, he's sick out there. And they all laughed because they thought it was a joke. And they all ran out and went, ah! You know, and they all ran on stage and realized. Oh so it was very, and I was kind of, the only one who kind of quite knew what was going on was trying to help him out yeah. and, and keep the play rolling. And I don't think the audience really knew because his character was sort of ill, too. Yeah. Hi, I'm Craig Burns from NYU. This is for Jeff McCarthy. How is uh, the writing of Sideshow developed? Uh, well, it's based on 
a true story. The Hilton sisters were, in fact, uh, a vaudeville act in the 30s and early 40s, and so they started with, uh, with all of that. Um, I wasn't there at the very beginning. I can speak for the character I play began as, uh, I think, a fairly absolute bad guy, and, and I, have, I will tribute myself somewhat for lobbying and, and working to humanize him and make him somebody that you care about to some degree. Uh, hmm. Help me, somebody. No one else is in the show. <laughs> it's it's that mainly in previews we've tightened and cut and cut. It was a three-hour and fifteen-minute musical, uh, and I did Les Mis, and I've had enough of that. You know, the <laughs> getting home at one thirty in the morning or something. <laughs> so that that mainly in previews, that's what we did was edit it and bring it down to just a as clear a story as possible. How long was it in previews? Just a month. Month, uh -huh. yeah. That's a long time. Yeah, mm -hmm. since we didn't go out of town. Lisa? Well, then, if there are no other questions, well, I have some questions. Oh, okay. question. Well, what about your name? Does that confuse people? It sure does. Yeah, now why did you choose to confuse oh, people? Oh, man, I didn't choose to confuse people exactly, but my name is, uh, I go by my initial, J. And that was because my name is Jeannie, and I guess when, by the time I got my equity card, I felt that was like a little girl's name. Now I would, now I'd love it. I don't mind being called Jeannie at all. But so I started going by Jay. I guess when I went away to college, and I was Jay Smith, which was really like being called John Doe or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and when I joined Equity, they wrote me a letter right before the playbill went to press and said, "You can't be an initial Smith because there's so many people in Equity whose last name is Smith, whose names begin with J." Mm. So I, I temporarily took my, the. The, my grandmother, whom I named after her last name was her maiden name was Cameron. So it was Jay Cameron. And then I had made a, a this sounds like a long story, but it's really not. I'd made this film when I was in college under the name Jay Smith, and remarkably, it went to the New York Film Festival, mm. which no one expected it to do. It was made, it's like a $5 movie. Victor Nunez, it was his first feature, Victor Nunez. And so they had already printed the film, but here it was, I was getting ready to move to New York, and I wrote Victor Nunez a, a letter and said, Gee, I've had to change my name to Jay Cameron. I know that in the film I build is Jay Smith, and I had the title role, so I really wanted to somehow capitalize on it. And I said, is there any way you can think, at least in the press release or something, to help me out? And I got a poster in the mail right before I moved to New York, and it, my billing was Jay Smith dash Cameron. Yeah. He just added Cameron on the end, and I, I just stuck with it. There you are. Okay. Sounds like an author. It could be anything. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the print ad that you had running, I, when I was living in California, I saw you, for some pharmaceutical thing, it had your name right on it. I'll, oh, I know. Well, I don't know why they did that. I guess yeah. for... <coughs> I love that, though. <laughs> I wanted to ask one question, too. Um, particularly where the show is located, um, uh, your research is right out the back door. Uh, <laughs> Not anymore. No, no. But you're, you're talking, I'm a no, yes, yes, did yes. you did you actually? Yeah, we did. I, I mean, because um, we knew nothing about that lifestyle, you know. And uh, Jay, Joe, you know, Leighton said, well, "You've got to get out there and you've got to go see. You've got to walk, you know, walk down there and see what they're doing." Yeah, he didn't so, say walk the streets. Well, no, he didn't. But we did. <laughs> we, we were very. We, we did it actually, literally. About right. four girls. <laughs> we went wow. to the 44th and That's 11th. Great. Not very bright. But we, we wanted to, to get a sense wow. of what it was too. like. Oh, it was very, it was, it was stupid. But I'm glad we did it, though, yeah. because we got a sense of where the pimps are, how the girls approach the cars, where the runners are, how many pimps are on the streets, the, the sense of danger that's always there. 
and um, it, it's fascinating. We, we probably could have been killed. Did they because, mind you being there? Oh, I mean, no, it was horrible because they thought we were going to take over the territory or, to, or try to get the girls off the street. They didn't know why we were there. Did you talk to them, actually, one-on-one? -on -one? Um, I did, but not at that time, yes. I did have a conversation with a couple of Can I do a quick roundup? <coughs> Are you still working? Do you, do you take any lessons? Do you take any move any any courses do you do anything other than what you're doing let's start uh, with you, Jay. i don't right now but i will be <coughs> taking some more singing uh brush-ups and whatnot and, and i'm always uh <coughs> working in the gym as we were discussing earlier to keep that you know palpable um acting lessons i haven't done in a while and um don't have plans to do right now but probably will at some point do you like, prefer acting to writing? <coughs> acting to writing? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't prefer one to the other. I, I okay. counterpoint them and get bored I, here and go over you here. You talked about being at a writer's yeah. conference. Singing opposed to acting. <coughs> all, all TV opposed to the theater. It's all you do one, you want the other. You know? mm -hmm. And so hopefully you can do the other and keep yourself alive. Bob? I am um, uh, well. I coach whenever I have an audition or something like that. I always go to. I, I always need that third eye. Um, there's a lot that I do on my own, but I still like to have that kind of input. And um, vocally, I, I still train every week. I, I have mm -hmm. been since the first day I started this this mm -hmm. career. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that, um, especially doing what I'm doing, it's it's very easy to throw my whole voice out of whack mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I'm going really low to really high mm -hmm. and if I don't do it right I'm going to hurt myself. Mm -hmm. So every week I just need a little tune, so to speak, oh, you know, mm -hmm. just to mm -hmm. just to keep that intact. D. D. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't sing and dance like my esteemed colleagues do and I haven't taken an acting class in a long while, but um, and this sounds corny, but what I find helps me the most is to read a lot. I find like when I read a lot, it really stimulates my imagination mm -hmm. and I find that the single most helpful thing, I mean, I, I do that for pleasure as well. Mm -hmm. I don't mean scripts, I mean anything, novels, newspapers. Mm -hmm. Jeff? I don't dance, don't oh. ask me. I swim to try to stay in shape. Um, I, I don't take any voice lessons or, or acting lessons, but I find that I have, I have three children and they are my school. <laughs> they live so profoundly in the present and uh, I'm just so captivated by, by their lives and, and what, what, what they're going through, what they're experiencing, that I kind of relive it. And, and that process informs what I do on stage very often. And so that's, that's a big part of, of my life and my regenerative process. Um, I take voice lessons every week. I train every week. Um, I, like Bob, have a very difficult, very difficult um, role, singing role, rangy, and, and um, so I it's have incredible. to... Yeah, yeah, I have to <clears throat> keep the instrument, my instrument, on top. And the only way to do that, I would, I would, I would train even if I wasn't on, on broad, starring on Broadway, because you know, because it just makes you get better and better and better so that when you do get the opportunity and, I mean, they threw this role at me, but if I hadn't been training, I couldn't do it. It is so unbelievably demanding. But then they wrote it around everything that I do, so God help any one of you that ever get this uh -huh. role. But I, I think, just, just go to, just train, girls, and I'll give you <laughs> But, but I, I believe that you have to stay on top of your, of your craft. Yeah. Well, at, at 73, I... <laughs>
Uh, we go to him for training. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really. I, uh, I just have energy enough to do the show uh, <laughs> eight times a week. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is on stage almost all the time. And um, to, to conscientiously uh, contribute uh, uh, is all that I have. And, and I, if, if I hadn't had high regard for this particular seminar, I, I would not have come. Because I, I don't, uh, I used to, uh, you know, could do a, a major role on Broadway and, and go to ball games and all the wonderful things, play with the Broadway show league and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But no more, and uh, it, uh, so, I just, <laughs> I go to the theater. I want to say, I'm so glad you have that high regard for the American Theater Wing and that you're doing this seminar for us, because it's invaluable to have you on it. And to have somebody that came from the American Theater Wing's GI Bill in the school, which was really what we was started in order to give a background of what it is to work in the theater from every point of view so that you would know what the workings are and what was expected of you. And our seminars that we do here are always too short, and I always find myself saying, I'm, I'm sorry that we have to stop the seminar now, but I do, I have to say it again, and thank all of you for coming here, and thank you for coming. It's the American Theatre Wing seminars that come to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located in the heart of Times Square.